This is Island Waves, and you're listening to Inside the 46th Parallel with your host, Virginia Winter. And our guest today, Maestro Mark Shapiro. Mark Shapiro is an accomplished conductor of orchestras, opera, and choruses with a range of achievements and accolades to his name. He is unique among North American conductors for having won six ASCAP awards, leading three different ensembles. Mark has served a decade-long tenure as music director of the Prince Edward Island Symphony, which is coming to an end this April. He is the artistic director of Cantori, New York, and Cecilia Chorus of New York. Mark is also known for his multilingualism. The New York Times has praised him as an insightful conductor who draws subtle and dynamic playing from musicians. We're here today with maestro Mark Shapiro. Thank you, Mark, for taking time out of your very busy schedule and agenda to to talk with us today on Island Waves. Absolutely. My pleasure, Virginia. Thank you. Uh, You are coming at the end of 10 years with the PEI Symphony Orchestra, along with an extremely full tilt busy schedule as artistic director and teaching and lecturing and giving multitude of awards. And you're embarking on the PEI Symphony Orchestra's 10th season, concluding April 16th with a performance of Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 4 with the star pianist Sarah Hogan performing Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3. How do you feel going into your last performance? Well, it's very bittersweet, you know, but um, I mean, I thought it was kind of amazing that a Manhattanite would be conducting the PEI Symphony for 10 years. It's just so unlikely. So I count myself very lucky and grateful to have been working with this group for the past decade. You know, when we think of the past decade, we do think of COVID, of course, and that was a huge disruption for all of us. But when I, I was sort of reminiscing about all the things we've did together, we've done together, and it has been quite a fantastic ride. It has been a quite a fantastic ride. It's been said by patrons, and I hear this firsthand sitting in your audience that, and I don't want to embarrass you here, but that you put the PEI Symphony Orchestra on par excellence map from the time that you stepped into taking over as a musical director and as a conductor. Oh, thank you. That's very lovely. And I, I, you know, I think in my own life, I look for opportunities where I can, I think, act and make a positive difference. And I think that the particular chemistry and opportunity in PEI was really very much that. And it's really nice to know that the community has felt that way too. Well, the story is after the last concert, not disparaging, it was a beautiful concert. The conductor was beautiful that was uh, performing that that uh, event uh, about a month ago or earlier this month. But yep. everybody in the front row where I sit was talking about who's going to succeed Mark. This is not like Mark. We're going to miss Mark. And we talked about your effervescent connection between the audience and the musicians and that that perch that you sat stood on for 10 years. How do you feel about that? Are you do you think there's going to be a lot of pressure on your successor? And do you have any, I want to say, do you handpick your successor? But I think that's a facetious question. I'm sure there's a process. But how do you feel about all this, Mark? Well, there is a process. And I I think one of the things we all learn in life is, is when to let go. And I think that, you know, I have 
been in certain positions of leadership for a long time. I, mean, I was leadership of an organization for 22 years in um, the States. And then I think it is part of the work that when you are gone, you have to be really gone. You know, I would love to come back as a guest sometime if that were something that the orchestra wanted and the community would welcome. At the same time, uh, I think it's healthiest. I've been in situations where the ancestors would not leave. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> yeah, having people hover around can actually be a real drag on the future. So I think in fairness to my successor, whoever that will be, um, it's, an, it's an important part of continued service to get out of the way. So I think the, the organization, and it's also, I think, best for the organization. So, of course, if anybody wants my advice, my thoughts, um, I can offer them. But I think that part of the, the dignity and responsibility from my position is to, to say, okay, now it's your thing to do what comes next. That is very brave and noble. And a lot of people, as you say and know, uh, and can imagine, don't necessarily embrace that. Yes, uh, Mark Shapiro, there are big shoes that this person is going to fill. Uh, sure, I think, you know, as I said, if there's a, a groundswell to say, come back and visit, I would, I, I would be on the next plane. Well, don't so. take them off your contact list, okay? <laughs> <laughs> what started you? I, I understand you took a visit to, I believe it was Cape Breton, fell in love, bought, bought the cottage there, and then heard that there was an opening at PEI Symphony Orchestra uh, as either a musical director or conductor. I can't recall which it was, but that was in 2013. That's right. So the the story, you, you have the story pretty right. Um, I went on a vacation in Cape Breton, and there's a rather long story there where I was determined to uh, see whales. And the ships were not going out. It was a stormy, windy day. And then we saw that um, in Dingwall in Cape Breton, there was a schooner that was going to make a trip later that day. So we drove to uh, Dingwall. We found the schooner. They didn't have room, but they said, if you hang around, we'll, we're making another trip in three hours. And you can do that one. So we drove around, saw a, ca a tiny little uh, fisherman's shack that was deserted and for sale. And at that time, the idea of buying it uh, for a song seemed like a good idea. That in itself is a whole story. There, it was right near a place called the Markland Resort, which was very uh, interested in classical music. The owners who had died uh, were classical music lovers, and there was a summer kind of summer house where they had classical music concerts they endowed after they died, a bit of a series. And I met a cellist named uh, Ethan Williams who played a recital there. And he was from Halifax. He was involved with a little orchestra called Nova Sinfonia that played in Halifax. Uh, we struck up a conversation. Nova Sinfonia invited me to do a concert with them. Um, I did a few concerts with them and then uh, many of those players also played in the PEI and still play in the PEI symphony. So when there was a vacancy in PEI for music director, they said, we like you, would you apply? And I uh, flew up to PEI. I still remember it was a big snowstorm. And the famous uh, PEI symphony fruit sale was in full swing. Yeah, we did uh, Rachmaninoff's second symphony. We had a really great time. And uh, here we are. And here we are a decade later. 
Uh, yeah. Any any memorable concerts that stand out more than that's kind of an unfair question, but I mean, there's so much out there, and I mean, you've played all over the world. But looking here at the PI Symphony Orchestra, is there any one event that stands apart from the rest that makes it special? You know, it's a great question. It's always the hard kind of question for me to answer because, for better and worse, I tend to sort of fall in love with whatever I'm doing right now. So I think that um, some of the, certainly the cantata for Canada, which was something that we created with four, four composers and island poets, that's a very fond memory. And working with um, Hey Cousins, the indigenous group, uh, drumming group, was mem really memorable. Some of the solos we've had, you know, I, I think uh, that one does come to mind, the cantata for Canada. I think the Mahler symphonies that we've done really have stood out as who knew, you know, it was a real little engine that could. PEI Symphony, we have done Mahler 1, Mahler 3, Mahler 4, and most recently Mahler 5 in reduced versions. So the idea that we could do four Mahler symphonies together, I think that is is an extraordinary thing to look back on with real with real pride and satisfaction. And it was so well received as as well. Yeah, we were so gratified. You know, I think there was a lot of question of can we, should we? And then um, the feedback that reached me anyway from our Mahler 5 was, you know, wow, we did not think that this could happen here. And I think the story, if I'm not wrong, is that the orchestra printed 500 programs and there were over 700 people in the audience. So I think that's a credit to Islanders that there is such an appetite for this repertoire. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, this is such a, a complicated time culturally, historically, and I think to, to see how the islands has rallied behind the orchestra, it's very inspiring. So I could see what you say about it being a bittersweet moment for you. On one hand, you are ready for the baton, so to speak, to be passed, and on the other hand, there's got to be a little bit of sadness on your part. That being said, looking at your schedule and the, some of the things that you've done, my, my initial question is, who is Mark Shapiro and where does he get all this energy from? Well, I think energy, you know, who knows? I do. People do say you're pretty energetic. And I think I'm very lucky in a lot of ways because I really love so much of what I do. You know, when I teach, I tell my students, as long as you're not uh, doing email or in a meeting, life is good. <laughs> so, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, rehearsing, performing, teaching, these are wonderful ways to spend one, the days of one's life. And classical music can be a funny business. There can be a lot of, uh, you know, negative feelings within the community. And you think we all should take a step back and just realize how wonderful the music itself is. And for me, whatever mood I may be in as I walk into the room, just the sound of the music right away is completely inspiring. Obviously, you do enjoy what you're doing. We're going to talk about some of the places you've played and some of the institutions that you're involved with. But I want to circle sure. back around to let's find out who Mark Shapiro is. You grew up in New York, the son of a... I actually grew up in New Jersey. In New Jersey. Okay, where? I did. <laughs> now, yes. now you're touching a, a, a soft spot. Where in New Jersey? I grew up in Englewood, New Jersey. Englewood. I went to school um, in Lodi. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. 
I grew up in Englewood. Yeah. Right? So it was all down stomping the hill grounds. from Englewood Cliffs. Right. <laughs> down the hill. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lodi yeah. was where everybody went to get their driver's license. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I went to Immaculate Conception, the nunnery uh, on Main Street no in Lodi. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, okay. So you grew up in New Jersey. So your your father was actually a, an electromechanical engineer. In fact, I have a quote here where you said that your father, one thing I remembered saying about my father is that he could look at a motor and rotate it in his mind. Wow. Well, I don't remember. Where could you have found that? But well, it was a quote. True. It was a quote that said that and that your dad played the clarinet and guitar and then he exposed you to both classical and folk music. You've done your homework there, Virginia. These things are all exactly right. And I guess whenever I said those things, I was telling the truth because I do remember them to be true. And I was thinking as you were asking me, uh, as you're mentioning my dad, one of the things in his own engineering, he was very, uh, he, his particular specialty was high precision engineering and ultra quiet. So he designed motors that made very little noise. And one of the mottos that he said was from a teacher of his always leave it nice for the next person that's a good motto in and any I, walk of life i think that's a really nice motto absolutely yeah. so he was very yeah. influential on you both as a mentor of of philosophies of life but as well as your foray into music i would think yeah i think his his i don't know if it was a direct mentoring but his ethos is certainly something i carry around all the time and i think People who knew him and, and worked with him and worked for him really liked him and, and felt a great deal of respect and appreciation for his value system. And then you studied piano at that point as a youth? Yes, I studied piano. Uh, I had a piano teacher named Lenora Cortez. And actually, during the pandemic, it occurred to me to kind of look her up. And I was really quite startled to see that she had had quite a career in like the 1930s, you know, I, I really didn't know. And she played concerto with the Chicago Symphony. And, you know, I knew her many years after that. And in later life, she was a bit eccentric, a bit like something out of central casting. Um, I love it. She, she, wore, she wore dark glasses and she was uh, quite involved in astrology as a piano teacher. She, she was a very nice woman and very musical, I think. So you were quite fortunate in having these people journey you along the way. Yeah. And your grandfather, he also played a very important role. As a matter of fact, he was Rabbi Isaac Shapiro, and you memorialized him or honored him by performing, I believe, three uh, cantorial songs in Hebrew. So um, uh, not, not exactly. I, I mentioned those at our most recent Mahler, um concert but those are his performances oh, those so, are his performances yeah after he, he died when i was quite young in the early 60s and some years later we found in the basement he had made these um records i think they were 45s of him singing several hebrew prayers or actually he had made um reel to reels that's what they were reel to reels uh, that he had somehow been inspired to record himself. And that must have been he before he got ill. So probably early 60s, late 50s, we don't exactly know. Um, he made these recordings of these Jewish prayers. And then reel to reel. And then we, uh, my family transferred them to LPs. And then I found the LPs 
a couple of years ago and had them digitized. So then, so the family could have access to them. I put them on SoundCloud and they're there as long as the internet is there. Fantastic. Uh, these performances by my grandfather, who was an Orthodox rabbi and cantor in New York on the Lower East Side on East Fifth Street, and people can hear them. To this day. So if one accesses SoundCloud day, yeah. and puts your uh, grandfather's name under there, Rabbi Isaac Shapiro. Yeah, Harris Shapiro. Oh, that is wonderful. Uh, Cancer, they're right there, yeah. Oh, talk about the Maybe you'll slip of... something into the broadcast, and, yeah. And you know you must be reading my mind. You're in my head. Yeah. Thank goodness for digitalization, eh? So yeah, absolutely. So we can you know, memorialize this. And actually, we did find those recordings. And here is a little sample from Rabbi Isaac Shapiro, as memorialized by Mark Shapiro on SoundCloud. Enjoy it. Hey! <laughs> 
Shapiro, whose music was preserved in perpetuity by his grandson, Maestro Mark Shapiro, today's guest on Inside the 46th Parallel. Is there a defining moment or experience from your childhood that influenced you as an adult, or all of it? Oh, I mean, I think we all have a lot of childhood uh, experiences. Somebody asked me, you know, when did you think about conducting? And I do remember going to show and tell, I believe in first grade, with an LP of Nutcracker and a chopstick. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely remember that. And that um, one of my classmates, who I think may have been Elaine, I'm not sure, had a pair of cymbals, and I was very excited to indicate when she should play them. Not that I knew. And you you were in first grade, so it was a calling. Uh, somehow there was some, yeah, it was, it's, you know, I, I, I went a bit of a circuitous route, but I think certainly early on, I think as a kid, we try on many things, right? But Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. That was certainly something I want. We were, we were very fortunate to be near New York. And as um, I'm sure you know, there was Leonard Bernstein had young people's concerts. Those were um, something we went to. And I think I remember some really wonderful experiences hearing live music. And actually, since you are from New Jersey, you may have known there was the Teaneck Symphony. I do know the Teaneck Symphony. That's right. Yes. And I remember as a child seeing them play and being very... And I remember they had a woman timpanist who I was quite fascinated by. But I, it was a very... It was nice to see those concerts, too. It was nice that they were made available to us and that children were welcome. Yep, absolutely. Can we talk about your academic journey? private school, public school? What What's your progress in academia that led you to Yale and eventually to France to study in John Hopkins? Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. Sure. So um, in New Jersey, I went to public school until sixth grade. Um, and then my parents wanted me to go to a local private school. So I did that. There was, uh, I think, some of the teaching I had at that high school, Dwight Englewood School, was some of the best teaching I ever had anywhere. Um, particularly for me anyway, in literature and in foreign languages. I had amazing French teachers, um, amazing Latin teachers, and English teachers. And actually, for another group that I lead in New York, we just got a donation from my seventh grade English teacher who has stayed kind of aware of what I've been doing all these years later. And it's so touching to do that, especially because I was completely terrified of him. So it's very nice that uh, that's that's come around. That, that is wonderful. That's that's quite an homage and recognition, I would say. I think mutual. Yeah, mutually. It's very, yeah. Is that the group yeah. that you're with with uh, Cantori or the Cecilia Chorus? So the uh, the particular he made a donation to Cantori as he's to Cantori. Doing, which is really lovely of him. But also in high school, we did have good uh, music teachers, and I think we were very fortunate. In uh, I sang in the chorus and the quality of music that we sang, I look back on it. And I think 
not too many high schools are doing this kind of thing now. No. You know, we sang Brahms Nenya and Chichester Psalms and a lot of other really excellent music. And we um, had wonderful teachers that, that could teach us about yeah. harmony and half notes and how to hold a note. And yeah, it was just, exactly. it's a, it was a wonderful time and a lot of production that came out of high schools. Yep. Uh, and I did do, you know, I, as I, I did do some musical theater. I never really got cast in anything that I totally wanted, but, um, and there is a bit of a story there that uh, I was auditioning for Oliver. Um, and I think I must have been about 13. And during the audition, my voice began to crack. And uh, it was clear that I was not going to be cast as Oliver. And actually, I, I did not think of this Virginia until we're talking now. But this teacher I just mentioned, Malcolm Duffy, uh, had a bit of a wicked sense of humor. I said I was pretty scared of him. And... He was also, I think he must have been directing Oliver, um, but he was casting it. And when my voice cracked after the audition, he said, that's the first time I've ever heard anybody sing a duet with himself. <laughs> so he had a sense of humor. <laughs> he did have a sense of humor. So yeah, so I did uh, a few musicals then. And then, um, as you mentioned, I went to Yale, which had a very good academic music department. It wasn't a performance major, but we had some really good teachers in theory and music history. Uh, there was a woman who I, I believe has since passed, but Elizabeth Keitel, who used to play cocktail medleys of early music. She was really memorable. And then I kind of got the bug. I, as I mentioned, I had very good foreign language teaching in high school. So I spoke quite good French. And uh, the name Nadia Boulanger was very much on the lips of people at Yale at that time. She was a very famous music teacher. She had a program called at Fontainebleau at the Chateau. I went there in the summer of 1980. She had died in 1979. And her successor and I became close. And for various reasons, the American foundation that was running Fontainebleau thought he needed kind of an intern to help him out. And they offered me that opportunity, which led to my staying in France for a number of years, studying there. Um, getting a, a degree in conducting and in solfege also. And then I, when my father was ill, I came back to the States and then later went to, as you mentioned, Peabody, which is part of Johns Hopkins. All of this foray into the European side of the world led you to become, well, you were fluent in French and English. You yeah. improved your German and your, your Italian. Well, I actually, I read I want to make sure I got this right. You read German and Italian. You decipher alphabets of Russia in Russian, Hebrew, and ancient Greek. Fair to say, hobby, a passion, or just, uh, again, the quest for, for excellence? It seems to be something you enjoy because you read, what is it, you read one book in each language each year. I think when I said that, it was true. I've been a little bit lax, but I'm, I'm planning to come back to it. I'll swear to it on your show. Um, Okay, and good. I still read quite a bit in French, but um, I have to find the right things now to read in Italian and German. Well, there but you yeah, go. I do, you know, I work enough in opera that those languages stay very present in my mind. And I think I always had a feel for foreign languages. I don't think we've mentioned yet, we haven't spoken about my mother, but she uh, is a Holocaust survivor. Her family was in hiding during uh, the war. And she and I think her parents still felt a very close connection to Europe, I think with an understandable, quite a bit of ambivalence, but also they felt European in a lot of ways. And I think uh, in this country, uh, the United States, they still felt European. So 
there was always a lot of interest in European languages that I think I kind of absorbed. Um, and then I did, uh, I think music also is something, the, the, the tradition of Western music is notated and there is something about deciphering notation that appeals to me. You mentioned something about conducting a range of operas, which I see are at Juilliard Vocal Arts, including works by Britton, Poulenc, am I saying that right, and Stravinsky? Yeah. How yep. is that distinguished from saying orchestral pieces or orchestral conducting and leading that you've done? And I've seen some of the opera singers sing as part of their solos with your orchestra. Is there a distinct difference when you're just dealing with uh, conducting for an opera as opposed to an orchestral piece alone? You know, it's a great question, and I think I'm going to answer it in a very uh, oblique and maddening way, Virginia. So during the last year, I think uh, partly as an outcome of the pandemic, I've been reading quite a bit of philosophy, and in particular, Wittgenstein has really come on my radar as somebody who has a lot to offer. And I think essentially the the words we use can really put us into certain frames of mind. So on the one hand, conducting is conducting, right? You have, you're trying to serve the moment. As I tell my own students, there is a philosophy of the situation and whatever the situation is, it is. And that's how you, that's the space within which you act as a conductor. Then every um, segment of repertoire and every piece has its own particularities, as do particular people. And you deal with the situation as you find it. So opera, you're certainly serving the stage. Um, and I think to be successful in opera, you have to have some intuition for what's happening on stage for the kind of drama that is unfolding. The biggest difference between opera music, and, between opera and orchestral music is not only that they're singing, but that they're words. So you're, if you're, I think, doing opera well, you're also thinking about expression of the text. And in orchestral music, the, the text is more metaphorical. It's what's happening in the, the poetry of sound. I think in instrumental conducting, the best instrumental conducting really is very aware of always pitch and melody. Um, sometimes people think only about rhythm and that can make for a bit of a, the music can feel a little boring, I think. And one of the things that I think we all have to fight within classical music is performances that are kind of boring. And I would include performances that have a kind of flashiness about them, but are still not that interesting. Well, that's right, because it's, it, it's there's a simil similarity there. And I would have to right. say, and maybe it's because I'm one of the biggest fans there, is that your concerts are never boring. And now that hey, that's so important to me, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, I think it starts with you do that lecture before, in which you are your way of expressing it makes people feel like. I hate to use the, the, the phrase, you don't dumb it down and you don't act above everybody. You you make that transition to where we're all there learning what you're having to say, hanging on your every edge. Then we get to go inside the, the theater where we hear this brilliant performance that is preceded by, again, another bridge, if you will, between the uh, between the the instruments and the players, and the performers the stage and the audience and you you just bridge that gap and bring it in and i think that's why i've heard some of the comments the last time was who's going to who's going to replace our mark who's going to do it this way because 
I think as audiences, we've come to count on that, and you don't always get that. Well, thank you. I, I, everything you said is everything I strive to do, and it's very satisfying to hear from you that um, it's, it's being received. That's important to me. Thank you. Well, I think we're all a little scared about what's going to be the next step for the PI Symphony Orchestra. I mean, we will ask you, I will ask you, you know, what's in the in the wrap up hit hit questions, you know, what's next. But for us, it's also a what's next, what to anticipate. I'm sure there will be somebody that is going to be equally skilled. And I, I I'm sure that they will find their niche. But it's it's making that that transition for us as audience as well. Sure. You're very unique in, among North American conductors for having won six ASCAP awards, leading three different ensembles. How, again, I, I, I am uh, curious about where you have all the, I mean, your life has been so full and so part of the music world on so many different levels. How do you manage it? Uh, that's a good, <laughs> it's a good question. I make lots of lists. I keep a, a calendar. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the music itself, as I said, I, I remind myself whenever I feel overwhelmed by all that the the admin and the organization that things take, that as soon as you're in the room making the music, you feel like this is what life is for, really. So um, I think that sense of purpose gives me a lot of energy and I do like to operate in environments, which I think has been one of the reasons uh, my tenure in PEI, I think has been pretty successful, is this where, where I can make a difference. Um, that is something I always wanted to be about. And some of the, the opportunities I've had, I think I have been able to um, help an organization achieve things it didn't necessarily realize that it could. And that has been very, that's always very satisfying work, both when uh, I conduct, when I rehearse, when I teach, when I perform. And I think that's and the for consensus. And also, as you yes. said, thank you. Sorry, also speaking to audiences that I think, um, you know, you mentioned uh, some of the, the lecturing I do and the pre-concert talks. And just to, to have people realize there are points of access that are completely available to us if we just kind of know where they are. I, I believe that. And the thing is, I've noticed and observed in the audiences, it's not just the the older people or even the adults. It's There's children that come, and they're very respectful. In fact, one of the concerts that you gave, I believe it was in the one in the fall, you actually invited a young person up to come up and lead uh, in the beginning. You were giving everybody the lecture about um, and I may have this wrong, how the baton and uh, the baton goes, which I, I'm going to try it. I think it's southwest, east, north. That's right, for 4-4. Four, four. I remembered yes, but... it. I remembered it. And you brought, <laughs> this, you brought this young lady. And I would not have known that. And I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I just learned that recently. So thank you. Um, but sure. you, you brought the young lady up and she did it. And I, that has to be a pivotal moment in any person's life, whether they're going onto music, staying in music, if it's their love, their passion, or they're going to be a doctor, they're always going to remember that event. You know, how do you... Oh, I hope so. And uh, yeah. It, we've loved, uh, since I started, actually, that is something we've done, is to have a, a young person come and conduct O Canada. Um, and then, unfortunately, because of the, the pandemic, we could not do it. So 
Uh, of course, during the pandemic, we didn't perform at all. And then there were constraints about bringing somebody on stage. So we didn't do it for a while, but now we're able to do it again. And I'm so pleased. I, I'm sure we'll do it at my next concert um, in April. The next concert in April. I want to talk a little bit about that. How are you preparing for it? And it's going to be a little emotional, don't you think, for both you and the audience and the musicians? Fair, fair to um, say? I, I think that's fair to say. You know, I think I always think of it as trying to do my best conducting and not to be too too focused on other kinds of things. So for me, it will be about these two pieces are fantastic. Um, the Rachmaninoff is a huge project for, for pianist Sarah Hagen, and I want to make it everything she could possibly want that to be. So, you know, a big part of my job will be to to ensure that she's maximally at ease and able to really do what she can do. And that will be plenty uh, to think about. And then the Tchaikovsky for me is, is always a very emotional piece anyway. Um, and just projecting its story will, will keep me plenty busy and thinking about, you know, I study the pieces, I study the scores, I think a lot about what, what makes them tick and then what I want to be exploring as a conductor to get the, the most vivid possible result from the orchestra. We'll be back with our guest, Mark Shapiro, on Inside the 46th Parallel. Among his multitude of talents and involvements with musical projects, Maestro Shapiro also conducted engagements with American Opera Projects and the Center for Contemporary Opera. In 2022, Juilliard Vocal Arts engaged him for a fifth collaboration on a chamber version of Stravinsky, The Rake's Breath, for which Opera News appreciated his crisp elegance of his leadership. Also in 2022, Shapiro conducted the world premiere of Syrian composer Zaid Jabari's Southern Crossings, a new opera about Charles Darwin and astronomer John Herschel. Shapiro is a highly regarded teacher of conducting at Juilliard, Mans, Columbia Teachers College, and the European American Musical Alliance in Paris. Maestro Shapiro has served a decade-long tenure as music director of the Prince Edward Island Symphony. His repertoire has included symphonies by Beethoven, Berlioz, Brahms, Dvorak, Mahler, Mozart, Prokofiev, Rachmaninoff, works by Barber, Britton, Copland, Ravel, Stravinsky, as well as commissions and local premieres by Canadian composers, including Linda Bouchard, John Estacio, and collaborations with pop artists Lenny Gallant, Ten Strings and a Goat Skin, Fishton, and Richard Wood. Shapiro's critically lauded album Glass Hour of Works by Philip Glass, with Irish violinist Gregory Harrington and the Janacek Philharmonic, reached the Billboard Classical Chart twice.
And we're back with Maestro Mark Shapiro on Inside the 46th Parallel. I'm going to kind of jump the gun here because we're talking about sure. that performance. And I want to ask you, so I'm, I'm visiting this along with you as you're talking. So the performance is over. You take your final bow and you walk off that stage. Then what? Well, first of all, I don't, I'm biased again. I'm not using the word final. I'm saying my final bow as music director. I would not rule out coming back if that were in the cards. Because the word final is sad. It is sad. Um, I'm sorry yeah. I used it. That's all right. So, you know, I think there are endings when we, we actually die. But <laughs> barring that. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, as to then what, um, for me, the, the I will have a um, concert in Carnegie Hall actually two weeks after PEI, which I'm quite excited about. We've commissioned a work that's with the Cecilia Chorus and Orchestra, uh, we've commissioned a composer named Derek Skye, and we'll be doing the premiere of the orchestral version of his piece. And we're doing, interestingly, there's um, a composer named Mariana von Martinez, who people should research. She's been an amazing discovery for us and for me. She was Mozart's preferred forehand piano duet partner and a very distinguished composer in her own right, very much uh, sort of set aside by history. And we've discovered this performance will be the first time ever in Carnegie Hall that an or a choral orchestral work of hers is being performed. So we're doing her Dixie Dominus, which is a tremendous piece. And you feel her, the vigor of her thought. So that's exciting. And then after that, Cantor in New York is doing a massive new piece by a very distinguished American composer named David Del Tredici. And then uh, there's also, uh, I put it in the program note, but I can say it here that... Um, I've been named principal conductor of a new opera company that is being established in New York called the Marshall Opera. Wonderful. And that will Congratulations. Be I'll be also, thank you. Uh, that's something I'll be devoting um, some time to in, in seasons to come. And then, you know, other things on the horizon as well. So there's not a break. Uh, I'll mention one other project, sorry, very, very dear to my heart, that um, in December of this year, the Cecilia Chorus has commissioned a new work to honor the 75th anniversary of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, we have some connections within the, that organization to the UN and the Human Rights Office. And I think there's a real important conversation to be had about revisiting human rights as a, as a universal principle. You know, we see what's happening in the world, in Ukraine, Uganda, you know, so, so many places where there are human rights challenges. And I'll, if, if you'll allow me a brief sidebar into how that project came about. Please do so. A composer named Darren Hagen, whom I've known for a long time, I did a piece of his years ago, called me out of the blue and said, you know, I've been wanting to work with you. I want to write something. And I've been thinking about Eleanor Roosevelt. And I thought, well, that's amazing. A lot of pieces came together immediately for me. So as it happens, my downstairs neighbor in New York City is Blanche Weasem Cook, who is the great biographer of Eleanor Roosevelt. And we have been friends, Blanche and I, for years. And we're actually uh, a little story for your audience, seeing a lot of each other right now, because um, there has been a leak in the steam pipe that heats my apartment. <laughs> and It's amazing what is, can bring things together. If yes, you let, if you let it. Yes. I think that's that something I've learned. Blanche. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that came together, this whole project. So we're doing a, a new piece for human rights that 
I'll also be conducting in Geneva in December of 2024 to kind of wrap up the year of celebration of this, the declaration. And rereading the declaration has been very emotional. It's a beautiful document and well worth everybody's attention. So this is very fortunate for you and for everyone Yeah, to be involved with this at this point. Oh, absolutely. So no rest for the weary. I would have imagined that you'd be getting on the next cruise ship and then, you know, making at least a six-month cruise, taking a break, and then coming back to whatever drives you. Because obviously you have an energy and a passion, and it's not going anywhere. It's not dissipating. You're continuing in doing what you love. And I have to ask, every once in a while, do you have to either pinch yourself or get somebody to pinch you to say, this is my life? Uh, no, I think, uh, I think I'm pretty lucid about what, what, who and what. So I, I, I remind myself to be very grateful for the, the things that come my way because they are wonderful opportunities. And, um, I think because I do have the, as you mentioned, I think it's fair to say I have a certain amount of energy and, um, imagination and willingness to, to take things on. So another project that I'm very excited about, uh, I teach, as you mentioned at Juilliard, I also teach at Manus, which is um, a well-known conservatory in New York that's now part of New School. And I'm about to start rehearsing um, a very eccentric piece by a great American eccentric of the 20th century with the unlikely name of Wallingford Rieger. And this is a piece he wrote for 10 violins that needs a conductor. Oh, that's wonderful. So it's called Study and Sonority. And Manus sort of got in touch with me in a panic. We have all these extra violins we need a project. Any ideas? And I thought, sure. Oh, isn't this <laughs> let's wonderful? Do Walling- let's do Wallingford Rieger. So I might uh, have to take a trip when that starts a uh, performance schedule. New School is a, has a very special place in my heart. I did a lot of my undergraduate there through their programs. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Well, back then it was called New School for Social Research. And it was sort of the, right. the school that, well, we like to say the serious students went to. If, yeah. if you were pursuing a certain career path or or an educational path yeah so new school is is very very dear to me well i encourage that's so nice to hear and i encourage you to reach out to professors i, I i'll share an anecdote i reached out at yale i had an absolutely amazing um lecturer named phoebe ellsworth who taught a course in psychology and the law um which was absolutely memorable and she used to act out cases and she acted out a the foundational case of principles of search and seizure and Miranda rights. And there was a case uh, called Map versus Ohio that she talked about. And I happened to see in the New York Times an obituary for Miss Map, who was the plaintiff in the Map versus Ohio case that Phoebe had talked about. And I was inspired to look Phoebe Ellsworth up. And as it turned out, she was just retiring from a position uh, in University of Michigan, where she had taught for a long time. Uh, I wrote to her. She wrote me. I said, you know, I read this obituary. I remembered your amazing class uh, decades ago. She wrote immediately back. Um, and then the story has a nice sequel where she came. She was in New York and she came to Carnegie Hall. Uh, she came backstage. We went out to lunch. And it was a great uh, reconnection after so many years. That is wonderful. Now you've inspired me. Maybe I will have to uh, grab the old uh, address books and see if I can look up and see who's still around and and yeah, let them you never know. know. It is. Uh, it's really interesting. And sometimes when you reconnect with people, they're just really thrilled. You you want to hear about what they're doing, and they're likewise interested, especially if they were your mentors or your teachers, in knowing how things evolved for you. So 
Thank you for that that advice. Yep. Uh, speaking of advice, any advice that you could give yourself today, looking back to a young Mark Shapiro? Uh, I mean, I think in terms of conducting, I, I'm very lucky, as I said, to teach. And I think many of us who teach, we teach ourselves through our students. And I try to think about the things that I wish um, I had had from a teacher. So I think a lot of it in terms of conducting is to really understand the music. So I think sometimes we come to conducting from some other place for various reasons and don't quite understand what we're really trying to do. You're really trying to um, internalize a text that is speaking in a particular language. And that's what you're meant to be doing as a conductor. So I wouldn't, it wouldn't have been bad to understand that more deeply earlier in life. And then also certainly play an instrument well, you know, a piano, as I said, my piano teacher was uh, in some ways inspiring, in some ways a little more eccentric than might have been completely helpful. Um, so really, you know, develop a, a good technique of the instrument and understand, you know, for me now, also through teaching, I do play scores at the piano and that's very helpful to me in internalizing them. So that's a good thing to know. And I think in general to have the confidence to to take risks and realize part of the definition of risk is that not absolutely everything you undertake will succeed, but that, that is the nature of the, of any enterprise. Well said, well said. Uh, thank you so much, Maestro Mark Shapiro for talking with us today. Any last words you'd like to, uh, to leave us with? Um, I think just, first of all, thank you, Virginia, and just gratitude to, to the whole community in PEI. Uh, you'll see in the next concert I mentioned in a program note that especially um, in recent years, the turbulence in the world um, has been something and the turbulence in American politics has been something. To and say the least, somehow, to say the to least. To say the least, <laughs> to say the very yes. least. And somehow getting on the plane to come to PEI, I always felt a, a kind of Ah, you know, a sort of sigh of release just, and I, I was very grateful for that feeling. I will miss that very much. And uh, as I say, I hope it's not absolutely the end, the end, but um, gratitude. Well, this is your home as well, and I'm sure it's mutually felt. And I too concur. I know exactly what you're talking about. Having made many journeys from the States or from the other side of Canada, and there's something about even with after a 12 hour flight, when you're dipping down over the island and to me, it looks like a, a smile. The To me, the island from the sky looks like a giant smile and it's that welcoming. And, and as soon as you hit the tarmac, you feel your home. So my hope, my hope is that you'll continue to come visit us here in PEI. Once in a while, we'll I hear that it. you're being the guest conductor and then we'll probably have SRO uh, performances Maybe if you're around, uh, we'll share some muscles or something sometime. I would love that very much, Virginia. You are always welcome, as, as I'm sure you know, the island feels that way toward you. Thank you so much, Maestro Mark Thank Shapiro. You. Best of luck. Can't wait to the performance. And I have been sworn to secrecy, so that's all I'll say about that. But uh, it will be a wonderful performance. Thank you. The PEI Symphony's 2022-23 season concludes with performance of Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 4 and star pianist Sarah Hagen performing Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3. 
Having recently performed in Europe and across the US and Canada, Sarah Hagen has emerged from the pandemic at the top of her game, and the PEISO is thrilled to finally celebrate with her in the season finale. The concert is also the last for maestro Mark Shapiro, as he concludes his decade-long tenure with the PEI Symphony Orchestra. The concert starts at 2.30 p.m. Please join us for a pre-concert talk with music director Mark Shapiro at 1.30 p.m. This is a great way to gain a deeper understanding and appreciation for the music you are about to hear. Thank you, Brittany, for that information. Don't forget to mark your calendars for this final performance of the PEI Symphony Orchestra, Sunday, April 16th, 2.30 p.m. at the Confederation Center for the Arts, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. I'd like to thank our guest today, Maestro Mark Shapiro, for taking time to talk with us and share some of his insights into his world and the world of music, and to thank our research assistant and narrator, Brittany Williams. You've been listening to Inside the 46th Parallel. I'm Virginia Winter for Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. sure to tune in again to Inside the 46th Parallel right here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island.